Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram. I love that movie podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support the show on there, you can. That's at patreon.com slash I love that movie, and right now we're covering WandaVision. I think we're on episode three this week. Yep, every week we have guests, and we just kind of discuss those episodes and then other things I'm watching that week that don't fall into the regular movie uh, category. And I want to take a quick moment to thank my top patrons, and they are Chris Balga, Michael Cross, Philip Barker, and Ricardo Alvarez. Thank you so much for keeping the lights on. Um, and we also have a website. I love that moviepodcast.com. And as always, guys, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. Uh, but I've got two guests on here today. We're doing something a little different. Typically, we cover a movie, but we're covering a go show, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that is, but I've got two guests on here. I've got Greg Branderville and Bart Weiss on the show to talk about it. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. <laughs> yes, and uh, for anyone that hasn't heard the two of you on here before, would, would both of you mind just doing a quick introduction? Greg, why don't you go first? All right. Well, my name is Greg Brownville. I'm a poet from Pumpkin Bend, Arkansas, and I'm also a musician and now live in Dallas, Texas, where I teach at Southern Methodist University in the creative writing program. I'm the director of that program, and I also edit the Southwest Review, which is the nation's third longest running lit mag. And and I'm Bart Weiss, and um I uh, teach the University of Texas at Arlington in the Cinematic Arts Division. I've also been running the Dallas Video Festival for this fall will be 34 years. And um, I also uh, do a podcast about documentary films called The Fog of Truth and produce the TV show Frame of Mind on KERA television, which will be on this fall for I think our 24th season, which is kind of amazing. Um, but what we're here to talk about tonight is this incredible series that Greg and I have uh, have been working on for the last two, three years, something like that. Yeah, more like five. <laughs> <laughs> he lost count. It's been so long. <laughs> five years. Oh my gosh! What a labor of love, though. Yeah, it's it's a labor of joy, really, more than anything else. <laughs> It's like at every stage, this has been a production of great joy. That's yeah, uh, and actually the the field work for this thing goes back to 2011. Some of the writing and, and field work that went into it. That's awesome. Oh, I would say probably, Greg, 
a lot of this comes from growing up where you grew up. So it goes back even further. <laughs> yeah. I did draw extensively on my boyhood in that region where the, where the show is set in the Delta region. Well, let's talk a little bit about the form first. Um, you know, this is called a go show. And so it's not, a, it's not quite a movie. It's, it's a lot of different things, right? Can you guys tell me a little bit about the format? Well, this is this is Greg's construct, and it's incredibly wonderful. So, um, but I'll start a little bit. The idea is that you know we experience media in all different kinds of ways. You know, there's things you see on your phone that are videos, that are text messages. So there's words, and then there's podcasts, which is audio, and um, so the media that we generally consume in entertainment is one of those things. But what if you could have something that has all of those things in the thing that you have in your hand, that one device? And that's sort of the sort of germ of the idea that sort of spurred this on. Yeah, and a, a couple of things that I might add, um, because I've always been interested in multiple art forms and always played music and tried my hand at, at the visual arts and and always enjoyed writing poetry. I would sometimes be working in one art form, say working on a poem. And I would think, you know, this image right here really just needs to be a picture or this part of the poem would be better as music. And for a while I would just kind of deal with that and think, well, but I'm writing a poem, so I'm going to have to make it work as part of a poem. But somewhere along the way, the idea dawned on me, why am I forcing this thing into one medium when you could simply create a new platform that would allow you to ask yourself at every juncture, which medium does this part of the experience want to be in and then put it in that medium. And then the other thing is that I like to think of all art forms as having arisen out of experiences people were already having, like everyone moves their body and dancers take that and make it the basis for an art form. Everybody uses language of some kind of one kind or another. Poets and other writers take that, make it into an art form. We're all having this digital experience all the time. Whereas Bart said, we're reading things, looking at videos, sending each other voice texts, you know, voice messages, or listening to podcasts. So we're familiar with that experience. Let's take that and make it the basis for an art form. And, and then particularly question. when talking about, about the series, there's so much of the um, of the backstory and exposition, which in traditional film, it's like exposition and backstory, like slows down the narrative. And so, um, you know, we want to move on with the story. But what you find in the ghost show is that the the characters are so rich and the writing is so great. When you hear that in audio, when you're you know cooking or walking the dog or just kind of uh, you know doing whatever you're doing you can cherish and listen to that in a really beautiful way that, that if we put it in a film, you probably wouldn't have the patience to sort of really deeply connect with the writing. And, and so that it, it really does a great job. And then there are times when you need the visuals to really carry it, to show, you know, the, what the town looked like and what these characters are doing and how they move in space. So, so, you know, when we need to see things, we see things. And when you need to hear the beauty of the words and the sound design, you hear them. And, and it has this really interesting sort of holistic way of connecting the story in different ways. The other thing is 
that the other part of this is the interface on the experience, which is sort of a third other thing. There's the audio, the video, and then there's the interface because the interface like ties it all together. It, it like contains the universe where all this stuff happens and sort of puts you into a frame of mind where you can really deeply experience it. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, I've been through, there's 10 chapters and I've been through all 10, but I did find myself, one thing that I really liked about the format is I could kind of pick it up when I had time and I could really focus on uh, what I was listening to or what I was looking at. And I kind of just experienced it that way. Sometimes I would be, you know, in my craft room sewing or drawing or something like that. And I was listening. Then when I needed to stop and watch a clip, I'd do that. And it kind of created this interesting relationship, I think, with the media that is does kind of mimic real life where, you know, sometimes we're ingesting media in different ways. Sometimes we're listening, like you said, to a podcast. Other times we're watching a quick clip on, you know, TikTok or YouTube. And I just kind of like that. It felt almost like you're part of the experience by doing, by interacting with it that way. Yeah. Thank you for that comment. That's really wonderful to hear. And it's so fun to make a ghost show because you get to ask yourself that question about every single part of the story. Like, what does this want to be? And sometimes it was obvious because as Bart said, the very thing that will be death on a film and cause it to bog down, you know, a certain kind of delving into backstory or an idea or something like that is what we go to podcasts for often. So what we're doing right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And um, so sometimes it was obvious this needs to be audio. This needs to be visual, but sometimes we actually were not certain. And what we would do, and this was a lot of fun is do it two different ways and see what works. And there was, there's an episode in chapter three, like that started out as video, but then we had this character of this, that I was playing of this news uh, sportscaster named Razorbacker and Bart and I were both kind of regretful <laughs> that he, he only got one scene initially and Bart, especially, I mean, he's like, Greg, you really need to bring that Razorbacker character back. <laughs> and so I thought, well, hell, let's take this, let's take this scene that we're not sure about is it didn't work quite as well as, as video as we thought it would do. So I reconceptualized it as this bizarre uh, scene in a house that's being um, kind of commentated upon as if it were a sporting event. <laughs> and so, yes. you know, <laughs> I and, love that part. And we had so much fun with it. And it's like, that's obviously what that needed to be. But we mm -hmm. didn't know until we tried it two different ways. So, well, since indeed, oh, like ESPN Sportsman is my favorite character in this thing. And I, <laughs> yes. I think Greg should <laughs> do stand-up comedy. <laughs> I was going to say, while we're talking about the story, um, I'm going to go ahead and read the synopsis really quick, just so, you know, after people are listening to this, they may want to go check the website out. Uh, so here's the plot. No one knows what happened to Amra Bustani, a pilot and Pentecostal preacher from the Delta. She vanished on a transatlantic flight over a year ago and has been missing ever since. Enter a poet named Greg and a filmmaker named Bart, who passed through Amra's hometown and gets swept up in her story. Greg and Bart meet a host of colorful characters with clashing opinions about Amra and her mysterious disappearance. The townsfolk turn on each other in their confusion and frustration, but a breakthrough seems possible when a boy YouTuber in Lebanon unveils new information about eerie disappearing Miss Amra Bustani. Just like a normal everyday story, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I, I think that's one thing that I really liked about it. I mean, the fact that the story in and of itself feels, 
you know, like a lot of folklore or hearsay or, you know, like there's that that part with the boy YouTuber, which is one of my favorite parts, honestly. Um, but I like that there's all these different people from all these different backgrounds and then a mystery at the center of it. Uh, my husband was listening to me when I was listening to a clip of it and he goes, oh, is that like a true crime podcast? And I was like, um, no, but yeah, but oh man, it's, <laughs> I was like, sit down. And I like read him actually the description of the form to explain it to him. But um, I, I like all those different aspects of it in, in one thing. It was such a relief to have it done so that you <laughs> would stop having to explain it to people without being able to send them a link. Because once you go to this website, which is beautifully designed by Lauren O'Donnell using the the wonderful illustrations of Kyler Rose Parish. It's just like walking into this like living art museum that has that Delta like handmade feel to it. I mean, once you're there, it's just like, of course, like this is what we do every day. Like here's a video, here's some audio, here's a picture. Like, but when you try to explain it without being able to send people the link, you know, it sounds more complicated than it actually is. So yeah, that's, that's one thing that's so nice about just having it out in the world now. But Lisa, you did pick up on this sense of the sort of handcrafted nature of the universe, that there is like in the Delta, this, this wonderful sense that like the signs are hand painted instead of like fancy. And um, there, there's this homemade quality. At the same time, there's a sophisticated nature of the, you know, the photography and the sound design, you know, is all good. So there's this, this creative tension between the handmade and the sophisticated that sort of goes through the whole experience. Yeah, I love the artwork on the website, but then also how that flows over into the, the video clips. And like I was saying before, I really liked the boy YouTuber, you, uh, sorry, the boy Bulos. YouTuber part. <laughs> yes, um, I really like that part because I liked all his little signs uh, <laughs> and the hands that would stand in for, you know, clips. I just thought that was so incredibly creative and fun. Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Jamie Lerman and Kyla Rose Parrish because they worked together on the art for the sets. And as you say, that was so astute of you to notice that the, the sets are sort of then um, coming out of the scenes and, and then like beautifying the, the digital interface. The interface is sort of an extension of those sets. But Kyla and Jamie, who went to high school together with Christian Vasquez, uh, the director of photography, and Spencer Kinney, our audio director, they just did such a good job. So without those four people from Booker T High School here in Dallas, I don't know how we ever would have gotten anything like the fire, fire bones as we know it now. And, and the other thing about the, the Bulo scene is it was the first thing we shot um, in principal photography with, and, and Nedrick, the actor, was just really great. But when we're shooting and then we had all of this artwork come in on popsicle sticks and these hand drawings, <laughs> it's like everybody on the crew was just like, <gasps> There's, there was something really magical. And to start that way, it's like everything became magical after that because of the sort of playfulness of that moment. And it was just so magnificent. The performance was great. The writing was great. The art direction was great. The, cinematography was great. It's like all of these things like hit at once and like 
it just took off from there. Everything after there, we sort of built a, the community that was making the work. And it was just really kind of, as I said, when we first signed on, it was joyous. And oftentimes production is stressful, but this was joyous. And, you know, this was new for me, Lisa, because I'm most of my career, I've been making poems and, and music. I, I haven't had this experience of being on set and several people on the Firebones crew, which is extensive. If you look at the credits, a lot of people contributing to this thing came up to me and said, Greg, just so you know, it's usually not like this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't expect every subsequent experience on set to be this joyful because there was, a, as Bart said, such a sense of wonder and joy there. And actually, I got to give Bart credit here. This is where his, his experience helped us because when we were organizing the shoots, he said, let's start with Bulos. I mean, Nedrick's going to nail it. It's not a difficult thing to shoot. You know, it, it's going to go well and it's going to be fun to art direct. That's going to get us off on the right foot. That was such a good call on Bart's part because that it did just put the wind at our backs. Yeah. You can tell when the performances, everyone's just having so much fun. Just, I had a question for you, Greg. So you talked about, you know, drawing a lot from your background growing up, but was there like a, a new story that grabbed you? You know, what, what inspired the, the central story? You know, I have been puzzling over that uh, for a while. Cause you know, it's a lot of times when you're writing, you don't know exactly what's putting the pressure on your conscious mind from your unconscious mind and causing these things to emerge. But I think I know at least a part of this. Uh, I think I've solved this mystery to some extent. When 9-11 happened, I was living in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, which is a little town in the Delta where we shot a lot of firebones. And I was working as part of the Arkansas Boll Weevil Eradication Program at a, crop, <laughs> at a crop duster airstrip. And I was at that airstrip that morning when 9-11 happened. And here we were about as far away geographically and culturally as you could be from New York City in the United States and just isolated out there in the middle of nowhere. But within minutes, a rumor was going around Cotton Plant that terrorists were going to come take over the airstrip, steal the plane and <laughs> fill the hopper with anthrax oh, and then dust it over the county. And so all of a sudden this gigantic kind of unimaginable geopolitical disaster was coming home to us and bearing down on this little town in the Delta. And suddenly I felt how interconnected the world was. And I realized you, you're not going to be able to escape that feeling that you're a part of these geopolitical calamities. And that was my introduction to the 21st century. And I think that that feeling of having the world of, geopolitical conflict uh, come down and crush a small Delta town at an airstrip that the fear, just the thought of that might have been the seed of that storyline. Well, I also some, some of the other storylines were like a lot of research that you had done about, you know, about the Delta and all the different communities that, that came here, the Lebanese community. And then also with the sort of Lucy storyline, and the graffiti, that's a lot of research that you actually, you know, did yourself. Yeah, back in 2011, when I was really getting serious about this Go Show project and the concept of it, I knew that the Lucy story was going to be a big part of this. And so 
I went all around the deep South and photographed graffiti in uh, filling station bathrooms. And that graffiti that you see in chapter six is all real. N- nothing is made up. We didn't fabricate a bit of that. We just projected photographs of actual bathroom graffiti. And it was stunning the extent to which that graffiti that I photographed in 2011, the extent to which it predicted American politics over the next decade. And so, yeah, that, I mean, I, a lot of this stuff is just what I grew up with. Like I knew about the Delta Chinese, I knew about the Delta Lebanese, the Delta Italians, the, uh, all of that. Obviously the tension between races was a big part of the story of the region. And um, so it was a matter of digging down into this thing you already knew through experience to learn more about it and kind of couple your research with your, with your life experience. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I noticed right away that um, the South, the Delta is represented as so diverse, which is the truth. I mean, if you live in the South, it is very diverse everywhere in the South, but so often on TV and in movies, it's almost like there's this image that there's just white people down here, you know? So I really appreciated that part and that, and that background of that, that story that you experienced on 9-11. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, that's really powerful. And the racial tension in the, in the history of the Delta between white and black, it influences the way people of other communities experience life in the region. So for example, Amra, although this is a fictional story, it's the kind of thing that people really experience. It's kind of both white and Mm non-white in the, in the communal consciousness, in the communal imagination. Some people see her as this Arabic terrorist woman who's, you know, giving this fighter plane to Al-Nusra or something in the Levant. Other people see her as a white Christian woman who's meddling in the Middle East in a way that she shouldn't so that she's more aligned with like, you know, Christian imperialist, the Christian imperialist West. It just depends on the perspective. And so those, those ambiguities play out in fire bones as they do in real life in the region and all, all across the United States. I mean, everybody knows these stories. I noticed too, that, you know, I like the role that religion plays throughout the story as well. And, and the way it kind of changes <laughs> depending on, you know, who's, the preacher and who's not. And, and I, I liked the revival <laughs> stories and all that stuff. I, I thought that was really like an interesting part of, I don't know, the sort of like almost mystical quality that the South has. Um, yeah. I think it's the backbone of, you know, of being there. It's that's, that's the world that it exists in. You know, there's a lot of churches we saw going, going through there and everybody has a kind of experience with that. Um, so it's endemic to that, that universe. Um, yeah. And, and the, the, the thing that's so interesting about Pentecost and I grew up in a country Pentecostal church. So I knew about that, uh, is that there's such an interesting relationship with language. It's a mystical relationship with language in Pentecost. And there is this phenomenon of tongues and interpretation, which I saw a thousand times growing up, whereby, someone with the gift of tongue stands up and gives out a message in, in, in a, in the language of God, the so-called glossolalia. And then somebody with the gift of interpretation or translation stands up and freestyles a translation into English, often into early modern English, like 1611 King James English. Mm. And then there's this tradition 
of mumming plays that really isn't from Arkansas, but it's from it's from England, but it did survive in in Kentucky and West Virginia. And today Montgomery experienced that when he and Amra were going up to Kentucky to look, to deliver those snakes in in chapter one. And in in the mumming plays, often when uh, someone dies, they're brought back to life through quack doctor potions and techniques. <laughs> and it's and, and there's a I think a deep lesson in that, which is something that Pentecostals understand understand which is that through accepting the mystery of humor and silliness we can actually understand how to loosen up and play together and talk to each other again and have fun and and start communicating and so i merged the tongues and interpretation and the you know with the with the mumming play uh nonsense language that you see when people are celebrating the resurrection of the dead person in a mumming play often the characters will just start speaking in nonsense language and one thing they'll say sometimes in those plays you can see this in some of those mumming play scripts is the the word falderal which i think is where we get the word falderal which in english means nonsense mm. wow that's really interesting that, I love playful, that. <laughs> that playfulness with language uh suggests a way of being playful with each other and not being so dug in, you know, into our arguments and our identities and our subject positions. And, and that's, that's um, one thing about the Delta, the, the Delta Pentecostals and, and just the people of this way in general in the show that, that comes through, I hope. So I, I finished all 10 chapters, but I kind of did it sporadically, which I get the sense that that's kind of how you want people to experience it. But if somebody were to ask the question, like, about how long does it take to get through 10 chapters, do you have an answer for that? Four and a half hours. Really? <laughs> so they flew by then because I didn't notice, <laughs> but I never added it up. It was like one day I would do two or three chapters and the next day a chapter. And it's so exactly on. what we were really sort of going for. I mean, there was a time when we were thinking that we were going to make it so you couldn't binge watch this, that we wanted you mm. to take a little bit of time between a chapter and another chapter to just kind of think about it a little bit and let it, you know, marinate. You know, and I, I have this theory that um, nobody really likes binge watching. Like I'm with at three you. and the four in the morning, do you really say, oh, great, there's another six episodes? <laughs> Actually, that's funny you say that because on so on my Patreon, we we talk about shows. I can't talk about, you know, shows on my regular podcast because we talk about movies. But I was saying that I actually like the, you know, every Friday release schedule that Disney Plus has right now because it forces you to not be able to race to the next episode. And I totally agree with you. Sometimes when I've binged things, I, I look back on that experience and like it felt good in the moment. I, I, I wanted to get to the next cliffhanger, but I didn't really sit around and think about it and theorize and wonder the way that I have when some of these shows are, you know, released once a week. So I totally agree with you. I think uh, it's a good idea to, you know, take in a couple chapters at a time and, and spend some time just thinking about it. I like that. You know, we really were going to force that. We were going to try to force it. And we, we actually built a version of this that would have worked that way. Like we had it coded. But we went another direction in the end for a variety of reasons. But the, 
the cool thing is that people are writing to us and saying that essentially they're experiencing it in exactly the way that we wanted them to anyway. Like very few people say, I sat down in one night <laughs> and <laughs> just torched through it. I think people are experiencing it in the way that we, we had hoped they would. You know, after after you experience the beekeeper space band, you deserve a day off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so guys, what's next? I mean, at the end of this 10th chapter, you sort of teased another adventure. Is, is there another adventure in the works? Well, Greg's got this idea that sort of comes sort of as an adjunct to one of the stories that's in there. Clearly, Greg and I want to work together again. I mean, it was it was too good, way way too much fun, and we sort of got a kind of, you know, community of people that are just like waiting for the next thing. So, um, so funding would help, <laughs> um, but I think um, you know, do you want to talk about uh, about the story that you're talking about? Yeah, um, there's kind of a detour out of Firebones and back into the past before the fictional setting of Firebones in time. In Firebones, we meet this character, Beale McClellan, as an adult. She's from, she's in, in one way, she's a Southern belle of this way, Arkansas, the Delta. But in another way, she's a, she's a Honduran woman, it has nothing to do with the Delta. I mean, she's, this, she's visiting the Delta and the United, and indeed the United States for the first time when we meet her in Firebones. But the story is she is descended from folks known as confederados who were so disgruntled after the American Civil War that they left the Deep South where they had established a kind of empire and moved to Latin America to try to reestablish the Old South. So these are Southern aristocrats, Deep South aristocrats leaving the South and going even farther south into Latin America to, and and they went to Spanish Honduras, which is Honduras today and Brazil primarily. And so I was very interested in that history. And I wondered what it, you know, what life was like for these confederados today. And so I went to Honduras and uh, hung out there and talked to some historians and just some, some folks from the region to get a sense of this. And what we want to do is tell the story of Beale's childhood leading up to the time when she comes to the United States, when we meet her in Firebones. And what's going on in her childhood is really the story of this project, Confederata, which will be similar to a ghost show, but slightly different. Um, the working name, not really a title, but the name that we're, the provisional name of the form would be movie book with parentheses around the ebook part. It's kind of like a souped up ebook where the interplay is between text, like novelistic prose and video. So it sort of switches back and forth between a movie and a book. And the writing is a collaboration between Sandra Fay, author of Mourner's Bench, uh, also of Dallas, and originally from the Arkansas Delta, not far from where I'm from, and me. And then the filmic portions of it will be uh, produced and will we'll be pre-produced, produced, and and then edited and made ready for prime time by the same team that did the, the video portions of Firebones. Well, that sounds really interesting. I've heard a little bit about, about that history and what you're talking about, but I don't think that anyone's really tackled it 
especially not in such an artistic way. So I look forward to that. Yeah, we are too. I mean, we're, as Bart said, right now, we're just trying to, you know, round up the funding for it. And that, that took a while with Firebones too. You know, it's always kind of a struggle in the early stages, but I have no doubt that we'll be able to to do it. And, and the team is, is ready to go. So I, th- I hope, I think it'll happen fairly soon. I, I think it'll be easier having Firebones to look at, you know, it's like uh, we, we've proved that we can do this. Right. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Speaking sure. of, where can people find Firebones? Firebones.org. And um, we strongly recommend that you watch it on a mobile device and that you have headphones on. Awesome. Well, Bart and Greg, uh, thank you guys so much for coming on. Is there anything else that you want to plug before you go? I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of things I could plug, you know, Video Fest, you know, the, um, you know, cinematic conversations every Thursday night, but there's a lot of stuff that's going on. Um, what's happening in your next issue of the Southwest review? Well, we've got, um, a lot of good material. There's a Latin American writer named Sakamano who's going to be featured. There's a American writer named Bud Smith, whose story I'm super excited about a poet named Sarah Brown, um, Mira Rosenthal, Emily Nason, all kinds of good material. Southwestreview.com, check it out. We've got uh, new material up constantly every week. And we're really excited about the direction of the magazine and also the Dallas Literary Festival, which is headed up by Sandra Fay, who's my collaborator in the writing of Confederata. That's going to be March 26th through 28th, uh, available virtually. So that's another thing people might want to check out. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. I hope to have you back soon. <laughs>